0: Outrider podcast, Bad Business, is a six-part series about crime and detective fiction. I'm joined by a pair of shady figures, my friends Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto. So come with us as we descend into the seedy underbelly of fiction, where charming crooks, hard-boiled detectives, and femme fatales are all up to some very bad business. Welcome to the Outrider Podcast with Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto and today we're going to be discussing uh, The Woman Chaser by Charles Williford and um, Die a Little by Megan Abbott and as seems to be our our trend, we'll have Todd with some bio information and we'll jump right in
1: Okay, so Charles Williford uh, born 1919 He was apparently an orphan as a kid, and um, he lived with his grandmother. And apparently, when he was a teenager, he thought she couldn't support him anymore. He runs away, and he kind of lives like a hobo, from what I could tell, until World War II. He joins the Army. He's a tank commander, um, serves at the Battle of the Bulge. And then, uh, you know, when he gets out of the war, he just, he comes back and teaches himself how to write uh, fiction. He wrote two memoirs, too, I believe, yep. which are pretty well thought of.
0: And didn't he uh, publish his first book of poetry in 47?
1: Possibly. I uh, Yes. Yeah, I, I didn't, okay. I, I'll be honest, I didn't know he published uh, a book of poetry. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh. So yeah, he had some skills.
1: Did indeed, yes. His motto, uh, if he if he could had a writing motto, "Tell the truth, they'll accuse you of writing black humor."
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: So, I don't know if we're going to lead in with this uh, speaker, Richard Hudson. Are we assuming that people have read these novels when we when we no. do this?
0: Um basically I would not assume that they have. Maybe they have, maybe they hadn't. We'll just jump right in and if they want right. to yeah, you know, pick up they can.
1: Well, so we have our car salesman. Right. And he's pretty good at that. So he says, right. Yeah, he does. He's confident.
0: Yeah. You know, he gets into our... We don't know how reliable he is. And he's got a weird relationship with his mother. Doesn't he? <laughs> yes. I don't know. I haven't... And what are we to
1: make of his relationship with his mother? Uh, sort of, if
0: not incestuous, borderline incestuous. It's... it's definitely borderline I have no idea what my mother's boobs look like the little (laughs) he goes on and on about how good-looking she is (laughs) how hot she is what her how perky she is it's not right (laughs) to me that seems to be the uh one of the primary crimes in this novel is his rather bizarre relationship with his mother
1: well, and then how does it translate to his uh, relationships with women, just in general? <laughs>
0: which, which are not school. good. Right.
2: Well, it's interesting to use the word crime. Why do you? I mean, it seems that we're, we're being provided there some sort of indication that his background is certainly different from what a mainstream American idea would be. And yeah, I think we're we're supposed to ask the question how could this uh, seemingly overfamiliar relationship with his mother translate to his being um, really ab- abusive of women? Yeah. I don't have an answer for that. I don't it seems I mean, what's what's this what's the pop psychology answer for someone who's got a quasi romantic relationship with their mother.
1: We don't get a very good answer from the narrative, I don't think. No. not at all. He's, uh... He's not enough of a navel-gazer to... for us
0: to get there, as far as I can tell. Right. Interesting point. Well, and my thing is, I never was quite sure how rational he was because he seems a touch delusional and you know so I, what and I was kind of curious what are his major crimes really he's abusive to a couple of women he embezzles some money and he sets something on fire
1: yeah revenge at the end
0: and you know we had talked before about how in even the the crime versions and the noir stuff, there is a certain element to... There's a certain similar detective element. There's some mystery. And we see that in Abbott later. There's something that uh, someone is trying to figure out, but he's not really doing any of that. He's not tracking down a mystery of any kind. He's... He's in pursuit of a goal. Right. And it's kind of this weird psychotic... He's good, trying
1: for something,
0: right? But how good was his movie? Do you think?
1: According to him, it's uh, <laughs> if the executives had just got the hell out of the way, he'd have been. <laughs> what? What is Williford saying about that? Because he, on several, or the author, you know, he goes on about a movie is ninety minutes long. Period.
2: I took the, you know, Richard at sort of face value there. I don't know if, if you're, you're talking a cinematic masterpiece, but his criticisms of the film industry uh, seem to be very valid. And my desire to see his, what, 60-minute version or what? No, it's a little over 60 minutes, so it won't even play on TV. Um, my desire to see that is I'd give it a chance, and, and his criticism seems to make sense.
0: It's criticism of... Uh,
2: of the movie industry. I mean, it's, you know, on one hand, he is this sort of ridiculous narrator, and particularly his crime at the end of going and burning the print seems pretty ridiculous. And so you want to think he's not a reliable narrator, and so this movie he made is probably ridiculous too. However, his desire to be an artist there seems almost uh, on the money to me. I mean, he wants to make the movie he wants to make. He thinks it's great. He thinks it's going to deliver insight to the average person out there who he, he criticizes, um, maybe a, a, with a little more vehemence, but, but really not that different from what Chandler had said in The, in the, you know, the Long Goodbye, the last book we talked about. Right. Um, and he just wants to get that message out there, and that seems like a very noble motive for such a screwed up guy
0: but what is his message i mean it seems rather nihilistic the guy runs the the truck the truck driver in his movie runs over a kid and then dies what I, I guess i don't i did never pick up on what exactly the message that he claimed that this movie was supposed to do didn't quite jive with his description to me
1: i thought he was saying that it's the The reality of the American dream, rather than what the the ballyhooed American dream is, you know, this guy, what's it really like for people who work all the time? This guy that has to drive a truck, his whole the best part of his day is getting in the truck, (laughs) because at home he, you know, he doesn't have anything there, right? And you know, so. I think that's what Hudson's message is, is that, mm-hmm. you know, we're screwed.
2: <laughs> yeah, I agree. He's a he's sort of horrible example of, of capitalism run amok in the way he views manipulating people in order to make money. Right. And yet he has this ability also to step back and criticize society um, and see you know, almost from a from a quasi Marxist point of view, how pathetic this competition element is.
1: (laughs) He's a he's a character of a narrator. I mean, right. He's so he's such a mishmash of conflicting drives and I, I was trying to figure out why why we stay with this guy. Is it because we're just so fascinated by his
0: his anti-hero approach.
2: Yeah, I, there's you know, there's a
0: certain mania to him, and it's like, what the? Yes. F- You're, yeah, it's that. It's like watching a, a a drunk playing in the middle of a street. You're just like going, when's someone gonna run him over? Right.
2: <laughs> but he's, yeah, he's mania, got, mania is a good word.
0: And he's got a little bit of an
1: artistic ability, of kind of a, but not from any kind of academic training. So he's not been schooled enough or he's not an intellectual enough to be uh, cautious as, as someone would be if they've been <laughs> in a few, you know, liberal arts classes over the years. I don't, I don't necessarily want to say cautious, but I guess trained is what I'm thinking there. Right. So he just comes out with whatever's on his mind.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just found it interesting at the end that i I don't want to say I was rooting for the guy but that i found his his artistic approach interesting and somehow valid whereas halfway through the book i had sort of dismissed him as a kind of um you know jim thompson killer inside me which is another book we almost i think read but didn't um where it's just the guy's just a sociopath and this guy's a a, he's kind of a sociopath right he is yeah (laughs)
0: No doubt. I don't, yeah. I had come across something comparing uh, Williford and Thompson or mentioning them in conjunction, and I didn't see exactly what it was. Um, although I think there was probably a little less. Um...
2: Between Thompson's yeah. first person narrators and Williford's?
0: Yeah, Williford, I think, was cast as a little bit more. This might not be right, but optimistic
2: well, the killer inside me the guy's a I mean a serial killer I mean <laughs> saying that that Richard Hudson is more optimistic than than a serial that narrator yeah that's not saying a whole lot, but yes, <laughs> definitely
1: yeah, Richard just can't check himself on certain certain things right, and you know it seems that well, he just obviously behaves he can't handle it when he doesn't get what he wants on the film right and so he reacts to that and the you know his his treatment of women i don't know what you make it. that's really to me where the the sociopath is right. comes through the most it's just they're there for gratification yeah he's got no conscience at all there i don't
2: get well, it. see, it's Sorry, it's it's even more than just uh, someone who is you know, going to be uh, sexually liberated. He sort of deliberately ruins the career of the uh, his assistant in a way that I, I'm not really sure why you would take that step other than to be cruel.
0: Oh, oh, the woman, yeah, yes, sending her you back know, to he, the typing pool and right. yeah. What was her name? I'm suddenly yeah, you're a sir. Yeah,
1: after that little, after he bangs her. Yeah, he says, he puts out a lie about her that she's not good at her job. Right, right.
2: Yeah, that's where he really, I mean, he has this rationale for, for when he, He uh, what he does with Becky, with his sister-in-law. Sister-in-law? Yeah. Am I saying that right? Yeah, uh, something like that. Step-sister, stepsister, maybe. Stepsister-in-law. Yeah. He has a rationale for what, what he's doing there. It's going to actually help her in the long run, but... I just can't see any rationale for, I mean, I guess maybe he, he doesn't want her around anymore and he right. just does what he needs to to get rid of her.
0: Yeah, but is rape necessary?
2: <laughs> no, 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 but at least at least in his own mind, right. He has some sort of rationale, and he doesn't attempt to give us that I recall anything about um, you know the call to, the, to her supervisor. And then, obviously, after that, the the thing with with her being pregnant is is along the same lines, where he he's just absolutely cruel. I don't, I don't know any other right. way to say it.
1: Yeah, it's that's really the fascination for me with this character that we even read past a couple of things that he does
2: there. Mm-hmm. No? yes, that's what I was trying to say. That I couldn't believe it. I got to the end. I'm like, this guy is interesting. And with parts I just I thought we were getting a totally Um, you know, portrait of a psychopath kind of novel. And it's, it is, but it's somewhat more nuanced than that.
0: So why do you think he makes the attempt at the beginning to do it in third person as if he's, and then there's (laughs) that nifty switch where, you know, about just what the third section, he's like, I can't do it anymore. This is me. And
2: I suppose it has to do with that idea of, of genre restriction again, that he's, He knows some books and the books are supposed to be written this way. But just like the movie he wants to make, it's just not going to work for him to write standard third person, limited omniscient point of view. Him being Richard Hudson, not Williford.
0: Right.
1: Well, and he even comments when he's talking about, you know, he wants to create something. But he knows he can't try to write a book because that takes years of apprenticeship. He can't become a painter. That's going to take too long. So we we know that he's kind of experimenting as a writer anyway, or we're supposed to be aware of right. that. He's not a trained writer. Right.
2: It's too bad he wasn't around, and today he could have had a YouTube channel or something like that and been fine.
0: <laughs> he could have been <laughs> self-publishing on Amazon. Heck yeah. He wouldn't have had to mess with the studio. If hey, wait a minute. What's wrong
2: with better. self-publishing on Amazon? <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I, the other one thing that I really enjoy about this book is the sort of uh, the wisdom that you get from unexpected places like when Bill his uh, sales manager at the auto lot the retired military guy right comes in to counsel him he comes in to find out what the hell Richard's doing at the studio in the first place but then he ends up talking to him about writing yeah and I let me just read this one paragraph where Bill's telling Richard. about the writing process. But it ends up... (laughs) What's the secret, Bill? This is Richard asking Bill. Rewriting. First, (laughs) one word at a time. After you get enough pages done, you have something to read. If you can read it, you can revise it. If you revise it enough times, you come up with something pretty good. All writing is like that. It couldn't be any other way. So if you know if your story is, go ahead, put it down as best you can. You can always revise the lousy draft, and you aren't gonna get a perfect script the first time.
0: So, I mean, yeah. that's actually not that bad of <laughs> writing it. <but> really? <laughs> that's well, those are the rules I live by. Just put it down and then fix it. Just, but don't try and. From the guy. I mean,
1: this guy's got bigger problems than Richard's script. He's got the Santa suits. You know. <laughs> what about that? <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: That seemed like an, an an unnecessary cruelty that was designed to sabotage his intentions. If he hadn't put the guys in the Santa suits, then taking that money wouldn't have been a big deal. He could have buried it in <laughs> a salesman actually doing his job. Instead, he puts them in the Santa suits, which almost guarantees they're either going to quit Not make money or half-ass it Which means he's not covering himself (laughs) The Santa suits are just... (laughs) Well, I like the fact that he gets arrested While wearing it
1: (laughs) I love the Santa suits
2: And being so (laughs) insistent about
0: it
2: Well, what's next?
0: Nothing else to say about uh, Chuck?
2: I guess the interesting thing I saw, and I don't remember where I saw this online to give somebody credit for it, but somebody out there in some post or something compared him to Philip K. Dick. Said he was like sort of to the crime genre what Philip K. Dick is to science fiction. How so? And well, and that's that's the thing that that resonates there for me is this book is is a really interesting novel. It fits in the noir tradition in the sense of those that that sort of subgenre of first person narrators who are evil. But beyond that, it's a really tricky, complicated novel. And I think that's kind of where where, you know, Dick didn't get as as much accolades and attention in his day, but he has come to be viewed as a more sophisticated writer than a, you know, than than Bradbury and, and Heinlein and some of those guys. And that Wilford is kind of in the same both that he's he's got sort of a um, um, got novels out there that are gonna go beyond straight genre and be even prescient in dealing with sociological issues.
0: He manages to put some kind of uh, metaphysical meaning behind the form. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, and that his metaphysics is seems resonant to a modern reader. I right. mean, a, you know, 2018 reader. As I think this book does. I mean, you know, do we even want to use the term toxic masculinity? I mean, <laughs> I mean, everybody should be reading this book now in a way. I mean, it's perfect for for a lot of the the discussion that's going on right now. Um you just but, wonder but yeah, if also a publisher just the fact would that he's a, a novelist and he's doing um, yeah, yeah, he's not bounded by the genre.
1: Would a publisher even try to come out with something entitled The Woman
0: Chaser now? Maybe. Well, maybe. If we're going to do a new Woman Chaser, let's chase Megan Abbott. Segway!
2: Wow, that was slick. That was awful.
1: Right, so a Little, which is, I believe it's her first novel. She's yes. published quite a few books, so I'm not quite sure why we ended up picking her first book. I just think we kind of picked
2: it, really. Yeah. I think we like the picture on the cover
1: well but she's got we had several good pulpy looking books to pick from
2: yeah i know that was odd i don't remember why but but um yeah i, I see it as the first on the list too
1: she was born megan agat was born in 71 so she's
2: um,
1: still working obviously um hard-boiled crime fiction from a female point of view is yep. one way to- one way to look at it she's got a PhD in English and American lit she's won an edgar for one of her other uh, novels entitled Queen Pin which right that's a pretty damn good title <laughs> and she writes according to the bio that I read whether or not she still does it and I haven't gone and looked but she writes a blog with Sarah Gran who's another uh, Sarah Grant is the author of, among other things, this detective series, Claire DeWitt. So, a couple of good writers there.
2: Can can I actually, actually say that, I mean, Abbott, she seems to be playing the publishing game. She's got an academic background, but she's also very much a brand, and I imagine does pretty well if you look at her social media and stuff, it's all very, very steeped in noir and, mm-hmm. and sort of looks like, you know, roundabout marketing for her books.
1: Right. I haven't, I
0: didn't even get around to checking that stuff, really, but to be honest. Well, you know, she probably, uh, well, she is with Simon & Schuster, so, you know, she's got quite a, a budget behind her, probably. Well,
1: at least when we did, the when she published these whether yeah. or not she still is with the stuff coming out now. I, I think She point. just published one just this year. She probably is.
2: I'm just saying the podcast doesn't discriminate against um, uh, financially successful writers. <laughs> we'll put the millionaires in there, too.
0: I don't know. Is she a millionaire yet? I don't know how much her books sell. No idea. But this one pretty clearly falls into one of our our categories doesn't it though because she is the personal yeah one of Paul's uh,
1: when we talked about that first that first episode right
2: yeah and even more so than just the narrator the the structure of the book is that James M. Kane school of hardboiled crime where you have an average person who you wouldn't normally put in a you know Chandler-esque world who gets pulled into that world and brings that perspective to it and so that that is a whole subgenre of hard-boiled stuff too nice
0: yeah would you say that this uh, this narrator has also a bit of the existential thing because of the way the uh, the book ends what we it caps with I was thinking yes yeah
1: I mean, we what are we led to contemplate there that her Alice, her antagonist, I suppose, is suggesting that perhaps
0: Laura kind of liked that world herself? Yeah.
1: That yes.
0: Had that darkness in her that Alice had. Yeah. Laura wants to explore the underworld just a little bit, too. And
1: she does. And she does, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, if we're going to talk about the, the characters in this thing, and I thought a lot of the characters were pretty spot on, such as Alice, the, her, her brother's wife. I mean, right. really the character to, to me just kind of drives the action. I thought Alice was pretty vivid. Lois, for example, is a, kind of a bit player character, pretty right. vivid for me. Joe Avalon, the, the kind of the boss or the guy that's kind of running the action. The pimp and the drug pusher. Yeah, the pimp and the drug pusher. I He was vivid. <laughs> the PR guy. With Mike, yeah, Mike Standish. Mike Standish. I liked him. As, I mean, just as a vivid character for me. What about her brother, though? I mean, to me, that was the, <laughs> the calculation that was the hardest for the author to pull off. Because she's got this... Laura, our speaker, mm-hmm. has this cop brother... He's, we're supposed to believe that he's experienced enough as a cop, he's been through some things. So, I mean, he's obviously seen some things, a lot more than probably the average civilian has, just right. as a cop. Yet he doesn't seem to be able to pick up on it that his wife's on speed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, when you read those scenes with Alice, without being told, you know she's either doing cocaine or speed.
0: Right. But did... <laughs> I guess the question is, is that did Laura pick up... When did Laura pick up that she was on speed? That Alice was on speed? When did Laura do it? Because that's... Who's, she she gets told, doesn't she, by one of the detectives? But or, not until late in the book.
1: Or maybe it's Mike right. that tells her. It
0: might be right. Mike that tells her. Right. But not until late in the book. Right. And, and so... And since she's the one controlling the flow of information, if... Her brother withholds it from her. He may have known. It's just he, because at, at some th- point th- he knew some of her background as well, and he embraced it and he was glossing it over, ignoring it.
2: Okay. So, but go ahead, Paul. Sorry, I I think Todd's point still stands in that he is an amazingly boy scoutish kind of character. And why that was interesting to me is, it, again, if you think of the sort of noir template, women in in a traditional hard-boiled story, the the really good moral woman that you're supposed to like, I suppose, can't really be part of the story except as a maybe a victim, mm-hmm. because she wouldn't be involved in this horrible dark world. So, in traditional hardboiled stories, the femme fatale, who is essentially an evil woman because she is involved in this man's world of sex and pleasure and leisure, um, the, the good women in, in these hardboiled novels are really kind of these cardboard characters that stand in the background. And what's interesting about this novel is that you have Bill, I think, in that role. Um, there's obviously very interesting characterization as far as the brother sister relationship. But beyond that, I think what what I think Todd and I are kind of picking up on the same thing is that he's this cop, this this all-American guy. But he basically is external to uh, Laura's descent into the to the dark world through most of the novel until he gets Alice actually pulls him in late in the novel. But until that, he's oblivious and he's just kind of a cardboard character in a way because of that reason. Does that make sense?
1: I think we're, uh, Jason's point, is, I, I, I'm kind of struggling with it now. Because if I understand what Jason's saying, and you can correct me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're thinking maybe that Laura's presentation of her brother is just off. And that maybe he did know Alice was on speed. And Laura's, Laura, since she was kind of having to learn as she went, right. she just missed it. Is that where you're going? What you're
0: thinking? Well, if if she sees her brother as a Boy Scout figure and she doesn't want to see um, the darker side of him, then since she is the narrator, the one in control of the flow of information to us, the audience, then she's going to drop and it's that whole unreliable narrator problem you're going to have. She's going to drop and ignore information that does not flatter her. Or her brother, whom she wants to idolize. to flatter, to idolize, and it, it isn't until she discovers him milking or not milking, but bribing, um, the uh, well, the flop house mean. woman, right. yeah. the matron, that she, right, that she realizes her brother does have this dark side, and she has to confront that. And so, yeah, I mean. But I still think that
2: Abbott is playing that card. You know, obviously, she sort of self-consciously, I believe, Mm -hmm. tried to take on a feminist or at least female perspective to this noir. And I think part of that is taking that character of the good woman, which is sort of a a, a character that shows up in a lot of hard-boiled novels... And and placing that in the character of the brother. This time it's a guy, mm-hmm. and he's a good man, and he does good stuff. And because of that, he's not really part of the plot in in the early part of the book, first half, three quarters. Even mm-hmm. and I think both things could be true. I mean, yeah. there there could be we're you know something about an unreliable narrator and what Laura reveals to us mm-hmm. at the same time that we still have this um, interesting gender reversal. In the typical genre format,
0: right, yeah,
1: it is a nice uh, a nice dynamic to think about. It's complicated, which is something that is good in novels, right, so we have this unconventional investigator, don't mm-hmm. we she's a school teacher. <laughs> What about her, the the narrative tick, or is it a tick or is it a technique? And I'm just going to mention a couple, read a couple of little places where the author does this bit. And it's this repetition of phrases within Mm -hmm. sentences or, okay, she starts a section. That night I think about the picture of Alice and Lois, for a long time, I think about telling Bill. I think about asking Alice or Mike, but I know I will do none of these things. I know I will hold on to it, hold on to it tightly. So this hold on to it twice. Right. Okay, and over here to another play. It happens throughout the book, but I picked this one other spot. This is probably we're about halfway through. I'm ready to tell him to tell Bill to tell him at least what I have seen, if not the lengths I have gone to see it. Mm-hmm.
0: It gets... Is it rhetoric? What are well, you going Go ahead. It sounded, when you mentioned it in the email, it sounded like at some point it, it bothered you a little bit or threw you out. I was just trying to figure out why, why it was in there, why yeah. that
1: recurring <laughs> sort of was it a tick or a technique is it something that she's doing to
0: build a uh, a sound for example i kind of chalked it up to her just you know this is that character's voice every person has a as a vocal tick or a habit or a rhythm to their speech you know mark twain does it in huck finn he maintains that speech pattern for that character, which is unique. Nobody else has it. When dialogue is reported, it's different than that rhythm. And I think that's kind of just what she was doing here. And I also, towards the end of the book, because it gets, it gets more frequent when they go through that last moment where they're setting Alice up you know, to, in order to save her brother. It becomes more pronounced. It happens more frequently. She drops the back ends of sentences, even, and I think that's it's a psychological resetting. You kind of have have to ask yourself, who is she telling this story to, and then that might explain that that vocal tick. What'd you get I, from it, Paul?
2: I think yeah. that it's it's probably uh, if you, if you think about her as a first person narrator who is entering this mysterious world that she's not normally a part of it's supposed to sort of mirror the idea that we live in normal you know bourgeois society and we don't see that dark world flowing along right next to us so when she'll do something like you know he could keep this as a secret a secret that with the repetition is you get it one time, But the second time is her delving a little more deeply into what's going on. So I think rhetorically it's supposed to be um, sound, uh, at least, uh, get the reader into the idea of delving into a mystery. Here's a word, you saw the word, wait a minute, now think some more about that word, and there's even more there than you first thought.
1: We definitely have a feel in this book of uh, we want the speaker wants us to know that we're heading towards something right. darker and it's going to get revealed as we go along and we get a lot of little hints about it so i i do think there is it's a good possibility okay i mean that's but you know, it's part of the voice though too i mean right. i do think it's part of the voice it's a combination of things and i want you just wonder when the writer was uh, putting the draft together and just in the comp, in the part of composition, mm-hmm. if it just kind of came out like that, it was it like a decision? You just kind of wonder. We'll never know, obviously. But right.
0: Go ahead, Paul. Okay. Go
2: ahead. I was just gonna say that'd be an interesting question to ask her. I mean, there are so many dumb things you could ask a writer about their book, and that's one that's actually would be really cool to hear her. Right. Hear her respond to that.
0: Well, it's definitely more of a vocal pattern than a than a writing pattern. Because you, when I was reading that, I associate that more with you know, with verbal storytelling, getting out there and, and something that you would say to another person, not having written it down. That type of repetition is more of a conversational vocal tic than it is a, a literary tic. That's why, I, you know, it can still be freighted with all of the weight that that you wanted to put in there, Paul. But I think it's, it's still it's makes me want to know who is this who's this character's audience who is she telling this story to is she confessing this to somebody because it is first person and it does carry a weird tense with it it's not entirely present tense it does although it's mostly written that way
1: yeah yeah there's almost a feel that the speaker so, is trying to understand it herself and right. the the writing of it is a way for her to finally uh, sort of fathom what went down
0: yep. yeah it's almost like a and, a and a transcribed oratory so who is she is she telling this to a shrink is she telling it to a, another detective to the detective that yeah because it's, it's it's an interesting style and I I enjoyed it and it was a very damn quick read I was, it was. surprised because I thought I wasn't going to get through it because it took me a while to get through Williford which was surprising as fast as that went but of course I get distracted by other things in life I've been we all yeah <laughs> definitely I was definitely impressed I like this book a lot more than I liked the will of her I liked
1: it too yeah so what are we supposed to think about Alice though She is she a criminal I mean is that where we are with with that character, or is she just a person who had a hard life at a young age and got drawn into this uh, this other this underworld activity? Well, she's. And then she, does she try to escape it when she takes up with the brother, or is she being manipulative and just kind of building a little uh, defense mechanism for herself
0: yeah. somehow? I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks that. In some way, yes, she was trying to escape her past life. That's why she had thrown Lois, basically, into this dark pit, as, as opposed to herself. There's a bit of a masochist to her as well, as, as a sadist. She's, she's not pleasant, but she's trying to be. And, but, the, but she doesn't have the right toolkit. And so in order to be her, um, the perfect housewife, she's still got to be on speed. And and to keep that other darkness away, she has to insert Laura Lois into that to exercise that that sadism. But yeah, she's she's trying. She is trying. And then what I also think is that she might have achieved some kind of balance if Laura hadn't been so damn nosy. If Laura hadn't started getting suspicious and sneaking around and, and wondering if, if hell, if Alice hadn't tried to hook her up with Standish, it might've just continued in this weird state with, you know, lovely fifties house parties and no one would have noticed, but inserting Standish, taking that kind of, right. You know, she was, so I think what, Alice was doing was that she wanted to be good, but she didn't have the right tools or emotional skill set to actually be good. And so she was using that sado masochistic a drug addict, you know, stamina for abuse in order to be good, and of course, all that does is create suspicion and, and blow-up. Right.
1: The, the hidden world keeps emerging yep keeps coming forth whether she wants she wants to hide it but
2: well i you know i certainly think that alice is supposed to be a um interesting take on the femme fatale she does occupy i guess an evil role in the book i mean she obviously sort of sets lois up and But there's also sort of an understanding of her lifestyle to go along with the narrator's, you know, almost secretly being drawn to it that I think is supposed to sort of explode that whole femme fatale um, stereotypical character. I think Alice is supposed to sort of come alive.
1: Mm -hmm. Some of the descriptions of her... You know,
0: her eyes were—I should have quoted. A oh, the, or two. the first time with they're rotten or decaying. Yeah, that was right. weird. That
1: was weird, and it's alongside her. You know, she's very beautiful and uh-huh. seductive too. So unsettling. It was very unsettling. You're just one. You can't quite tell what the brother is seeing. Is he missing? <laughs> I know. I'm back to the brother now. Right. But, no, no. But Laura <laughs> picks up on it and. Somehow the brother doesn't see it, but you know what? It's possible. It's yeah.
2: possible. Well, well, I think like that passage about the eyes, That's that just seems like you know, textbook um, femme fatale stuff. I mean, she, she has a, a beautiful image to the world, but she's really corrupt at the core by this evil, dark world. And that's certainly how Laura interacts with her, but I think by the end, Laura and Alice are closer together you know, in our minds than they were at the start.
0: True. True. I I agree with that. Well, and, and uh, why can't I remember the brother's name? Bill. Bill. Well, I think what's kind of, um, unspoken in the book, I mean, or maybe it's partially spoken or it's partially hinted at is, you know, whether Bill knew what Alice was or not, he, he knows she came from a a less than idyllic background, and so he is doing this classical masculine thing where he's saving her. He's coming to her rescue. So whatever would have, whatever she may have revealed to him, whatever he did come to see before, you know, we have that moment where we realize he's trying to put the fix in to uh, to protect her. Whatever he saw, he was going to try to fix in his own way and but of course his efforts are completely irrelevant to 90% of the story until his efforts come into conflict with his sister's desires and his sister's desire is to protect him and keep him from disappearing you know, into south america
2: well, and his he comes into conflict with his own value system. I assume if we take at face value her her portrayal of him as a boy scout, that he's there wheeling and dealing at the end and offering police protection to a to a, a narcotics racket just to get his wife off the hook. So he's compromised his own values there.
0: But has would he say that he had compromised his own values? I mean, he's he made a commitment to this woman. You know, through marriage and aren't you she didn't directly murder anybody
1: I don't understand why this uh, what is the guy's name Shore who's really the, mm-hmm. the oh, yeah. bad guy
2: right the Harvey Weinstein character <laughs>
1: well and, yeah and, he, and worse than that
2: really I mean <laughs> yeah hopefully but uh, hopefully worse than that
1: Why does that guy have to be... Does the novel reveal enough to tell us why that guy has to be... That's a great point. That seems like a
2: lost thread, because he thought at one point, wow, we're going to go after this, you know, Hollywood mogul who abuses women, and then at the end it's kind of like, oh, well...
0: He just goes on abusing women.
2: Yeah, we assume. we can even have him killed,
0: right? Right. But Alice got killed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Alice winds up in the ditch, too. Yep. So... I suppose Lois then is the is the connective thread that I mean, let's say if Alice in fact does want to try to make a break from her old right. life to the new life, but you can't do that. Yeah. No one can do that really. I mean the old the past will reveal itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Lois is sort of the the unreconciled past coming right. back on
0: Alice the uh, the sacrificial lamb the yeah almost the Christ figure you know she's yeah she's damaged and broken but there's yeah. you know, there was nothing in her personality that you know deserved any of that she's an addict that that's it
2: <laughs> yeah I mean she's we don't really know I I don't think if I recall right what her motives were for sending the postcard to Laura but Certainly, one possibility is is those were noble motives that she was trying to, yeah. You know, well, pull post, Alice back where quote unquote Alice belongs.
0: Didn't. No, the postcard came before she rescued her from the uh, Easy Rest. Yeah, yeah, it did. So maybe the, I'm trying to remember if there was a particular kindness that um, Laura directed at lois oh yeah that? I, I bet we could pinpoint a specific
2: i just say in general it seems like that and i think that's why why lois would call her when she was in that situation or would, would allow her to 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 help her when she was in that situation later on in the hotel
1: i mean it i would say that lois recognizes probably that laura's just from another she's from another
0: realm, really. right so she's maybe even recognizes that Alice is uh, is th- throwing her, you know, to the walls, and is hoping in some way to get revenge that she can't get for herself. Could be.
2: But it's it's funny that all of the characters seem pretty aware of this dividing line between the the good. Bourgeoisie, working folks, and the nasty underworld folks, and yet everybody's crossing that line all the time. Yeah. I mean, we have the other cop's wife, the name escapes me at the moment, but she she winds up, you know, using drugs and overdosing. Um, oh
0: yeah, you that's know, a sad story.
2: Even Bill, like I said, the fact that that he he's he winds up playing that game by saying we, you know, coming in and, and dealing with the with the uh, woman at the safe house or whatever it is right um yeah that, that line's pretty damn fluid in this novel even though all the characters seem to talk about how you know they know you're on one side of the line and i'm on the other side of the line but it doesn't really stop people from moving back and mm-hmm.
0: forth so then is mike standish really the only somewhat decent guy
2: <laughs> uh, he's got a few liabilities perhaps too but uh
1: doesn't he kind of do Shore's bidding? He's one of the people who do Shore's bidding, correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to protect Shore at the end there. When when he looks in the file, he suddenly suddenly realizes, oh my God, this is going to put someone onto Shore's tail, and he, he backs off. And that may be self-preservation on his part, but, you know, nobody comes out of this thing smelling like roses.
0: No, not at all. <laughs> That's what noir is supposed to do, right? Is well, I, that's part
1: of yeah. where I was going, I think, with just talking about these characters because uh-huh. they're, they're complicated characters. Right.
0: Full of moral ambiguity, which is the stuff of uh, decent literature. Is. Absolutely.
2: What do you think about the brother-sister relationship at the end? It's almost like they're a married couple again at the end, like they're a married couple at the beginning.
1: All the way through the book, I, what about it? I was thinking that all the way through.
2: We needed to set up Bill with uh, Richard Hudson's mom somehow. And <laughs> get these two families separated. They, um, yeah, it's, it's a, definitely it's there's overtones to of that. Daylight I'm daylight not just dreaming that, am I? I mean,
1: they're closer than a lot of brothers and sisters, maybe. I, yeah. Is yeah. it just because it's
0: just the two of them? Well, yeah, they are orphans, so there might be at at least for all of you know the intimacy that. That Laura talks about in this, at least she's like never has some loving description of his penis. Right. (laughs) Quite like Richard Hudson is like, you know, my mother's breasts are magnificent and we get to see them and it's (laughs) just a little disturbing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting that both of our books would have that little odd subtext that, and neither one sort of puts it to bed at the end, so to speak. I mean, you know, we don't. Neither narrator actually steps out and addresses, boy, my relationship with my family member is unusual.
0: Right. I mean, I have a sister. We're not quite as intimate as Bill and Laura. But, you know, I could see families that were, you know, had a certain amount of closeness that, you know, if if you're not used to it, if you're not familiar with it, it might seem awkwardly, you know, too tight.
2: Well, I could also imagine a family where the mother being topless wouldn't be a big deal either. You know, if they're at least sort of hippie family, that's very cool. But it's the way that the description is in the book. True. And and also the way that... I guess the big thing is the domestic situation. The way they they seem to be set up as, uh, uh, you know, partners in life at the beginning. And this horrible woman intercedes and the horrible woman is dispatched. And they wind up at the end back in domestic tranquility.
1: (laughs) That is sort of what happens. Laura does, she is suspicious of Alice from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you do kind of get the impression that she wouldn't mind finding something
0: wrong with Alice. Of
1: course, there are a lot of things wrong with Alice. Right.
0: Yeah. Now, if 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 she just wanted to find something wrong with Alice, and there wasn't really anything wrong with Alice, then this would be a literary novel about you know. Sure. Um,
1: if it was just that Alice felt like eating a half bag of potato <laughs> chips, <laughs> or you know, went right. and maybe went to the dog track and during the afternoon and secretly spent part of her piggy bank twice a week, you know.
0: Right. It'd be, a, it'd be a literary novel about jealousy and and, right. and, and you know, family drama. It's as opposed we've got drug addicts and, and masochistic stuff. film producers and sorry, sadistic film producers, prostitutes, lesbianism. <laughs> Did that seem too convenient, too serendipitous, too circumstantial, the whole discovery of the playing card deck with Alice and and Lois. Did she find that under Alice's bed? No, in Standish's it's it's in drawer. Stan- that's thing, right. Stuff. It's at Standish's, right? And and I'm not quite clear. Did I miss something? How did Joe Avalon's address book get into the bedroom? I mean, she, we get some speculation on it, but we don't really get a clear. Are we are we supposed to not know?
1: That is a valid question. I'm not sure I am clear on how
0: that ended up there. Yeah.
2: It just indicates that, that he's somehow involved still with Alice directly either. Maybe they actually were, um, you know, sexually involved and it, that's why it's in the bedroom or maybe it's just the fact that, that Alice is part of his business. That is sort of a business book is what it's for, I believe.
0: Right. Yeah, that is one of the things about first-person narrative about that type of vocalization is that you can have these things that just miraculously appear because that person who's controlling the flow of information, which you're getting that focalization through, isn't going to be able to fill the reader in on mysterious stuff. And you just kind of have to accept it that suddenly this address book with this code in it appears under her foot. And whatever her speculation is, you kind of stuck with that and, and that mystery. So, yeah, I was just curious if anybody else had any other ideas besides. Well,
2: I, I felt like that a lot through the narrative, but but I felt like it was a suspend your disbelief kind of thing with the mm-hmm. typical crime novel where there's a lot of coincidences and reversals and MacGuffin-type things that happen, and so I just kind of went with it.
1: <laughs> I went with it, too, and but you do sort of wonder about those little plot things that happened. Right. Is there there an explanation for it? It's not... It didn't bother me. Right. So it probably worked pretty well. I mean, honestly, the only thing that I even questioned, and I've already mentioned it, was just the brothers, the the portrayal of the brother. Mm -hmm. Where is he with this... with Alice? Right. And it's... And I think we've talked it through pretty well, really, but
2: but... you kind of get an interesting dynamic there in the beginning because in most hard-boiled crime stories, the the women characters can be kind of secondary, and in this book, the women seem to be doing all of the action, and a lot of the men are pretty clueless. I mean, depending on whether you you know you believe Bill was or wasn't, it seems like all those detectives and stuff are. They're doing their thing and playing their softball game. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, you know, one woman's on drugs and another woman is running around playing detective. And
1: Why is Shore, I mean, if, if we're back, though, to the women characters and their perspective, why is Shore get to do what he gets to do? Is it because he's powerful and rich?
0: Yeah. That's about it, I think. I'd say. Well, I definitely think it's a testament to the strength of the book and the writing here is that when we sit down and we do talk about the gaps and the questions, it doesn't diminish from the book. This as a, as a first novel, this is damn solid. It is. Yeah. I can see why she's got the career that she does. I mean, it's a solid little book.
1: It moves. Yep. It really does move.
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind knowing some more context about because uh, there are what, like the first three books all sort of have this same feel, that they look like they're sort of classic noir. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me she's really self-consciously writing within the genre, where if you think the Williford was being unbounded and just sort of going where he wanted to with the novel, she's really sort of, I think, consciously trying to do things within those boundaries.
0: Well, she's definitely very familiar with uh, with the genre and with the tropes. Her actual first book was in two thousand two, and it was um, what was it? Oh, "The Street Was Mine: White Masculinity and Hard-Boiled Fiction and Film Noir."
1: Okay, so it's a it's an essay book of essays. It was uh,
0: yeah, I think it was just an entire work. It might have come from her uh, her doctoral thesis, the thesis. and stuff like that. So
1: might have to track that down.
0: Yeah. Sounds pretty good.
1: So, anything else? We're on to James Elroy
2: and Elmore Leonard. Yep. Oh God, help us!
1: <laughs> An American uh, urban sound. Yep. Is one of the things we'll be talking about because both of those writers really have a voice, I suppose. And
0: mm-hmm. so, it'll be... Richard
2: Hudson's going to seem like a minor league player compared to the people we meet in Elroy. <laughs>
0: So it's going to be American Tabloid and Unknown Man, eighty six. I, agree.
1: Unknown Man number eighty nine. Eighty nine. I agree. There's a couple characters in that Elroy uh, American Tabloid that would, uh, they'd take Hudson and and dump him in the ditch. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if they scare Todd, they scare anyone.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll be back in a, in a few weeks. The Outrider Podcast is hosted by me, Jason quinn and produced by Heather Ann Eden. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and go there to please rate us and give us a review. Or you can get the show straight from our host, podbean.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.